0: Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts, chapter 18. Laura Messi is an Italian fitness trainer. Uh, She never did find her prince charming, so she decided to have a wedding anyway, complete with 70 guests and a three-layer cake. The ceremony is focused on her marriage to herself, soligamy it's called as in solo, it's a new trend where the participant celebrates not being dependent the social structure of marriage with another mate. Now, I'm not a sociologist, but marriage without a mate seems to be missing something, right? Wouldn't that seem to be obvious? Begs the question whether there are things in the Christian life that we're obviously missing is it possible that somebody could go through all the machinations of the Christian life for decades and realize I never knew that I wish I'd have known that earlier I missed out on this it's certainly a fact that many do not feel satisfied with Christianity and depending on what denomination you're a part of or you know, what group will depend on probably what they think you're missing, right? So you're gonna get different answers on what is missing. Our text today though is about a good man, a religious man, but he was missing something in his Christian life. We're gonna take a stab and see if we can't figure that out and gain something from it. So let's all stand as we look at Acts 18. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him, And explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. Listen, there are no incidental, meaningless details that are given in scripture. Luke is making sure that we know that Apollos is skilled. He's educated. He's motivated, enthusiastic about Judaism, Christianity, and yet he lacked something. Now, we know that he was a Jew from Alexandria, named after, of course, Alexander the Great. Alexandria was the second most important city in the Roman Empire. Uh, It was an educational center. It had a library of uh, well over 700,000 volumes. At least a quarter of the population was Jewish. And Apollos goes from there to Ephesus... And he speaks to his fellow Jews about Christ. How effective was he? Well, we're told that he was a tremendous orator, eloquent. He spoke in such a way that people loved to hear him. However, this was not just useless knowledge, funny stories, sappy things to make people cry. No, he was handling the Old Testament scriptures in such a way that he mastered the material. You know, many people can be smart, they can master the material. You know, highly qualified university graduates, and, you know, we heard of some highly qualified. I mean, how many of those guys are rocket scientists you talked about, all right? Right? I mean, that's impressive. But let me encourage you all. Having a degree with great intelligence doesn't mean you have wisdom. Same for all of us. Because wisdom is when we we bow our knee to our creator and we recognize the source of life and truth. Go for the intelligence, and God bless you that he gave you that gift, but we want wisdom as well. And apparently, Apollos had that. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, His abilities did not stop here. He had been instructed in the ways of the Lord and fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Christ, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now the word instruction gives us the idea that he had some formal instruction in religion. And it was the way of the Lord, the, the person, the work of Christ. Now this wasn't just a cold academic, but he had a genuine enthusiasm about Christ. You know, when a teacher is genuinely interested and excited about their topic, they greatly increase the chances of learning, right? I've taught ethics and philosophy now for 17 years, and if I go in bored, tired, not interested, you cannot expect the class to be interested. So you have to do your job to get your mind and heart ready, right? There was a teacher in my high school that he would start the class, the first day of class each semester, he'd introduce himself with this line to the class. I don't like this topic and the only reason I'm teaching is because I'm a coach. Mmm man, we are excited for this semester, right? A dispassionate, bored teacher sucks the life out of a classroom, right? But Apollos was energized. He was eager about Christ being the Messiah. And details mattered to Apollos. He took great care of what was taught, that it was consistent with Scripture. It was consistent with history. He was accurate. Oh, God, give us more teachers like that. And we now come to a very difficult part of this passage. He knew only the baptism of John. It's said in a way that conveys the idea that Apollos was somehow deficient in something and that the baptism of John would not suffice. You know, in over 80 commentaries that I have on the book of Acts, there is no grand agreement as to what this means. Meanings range from Apollos was not a Christian, uh, to he didn't have the Holy Spirit, to he didn't have the right mode of baptism. So let's see if we can't just start with what we know and try to gain some understanding. The first is this the text does not say that he was a non-Christian. We have to agree with that fact. I mean, when Aquila and Priscilla take him aside, it does not say that they led him to Christ, but they helped him know the way of God more accurately. Now, frankly, it doesn't seem all that alarming. I mean, all of us could at just about any season say that we could learn the way of God more accurately. Could we not? I mean, how many of us could say, you know what, I've arrived. I don't need any more truth. I don't need any more wisdom. I've got this Christian thing down, right? I mean, I've been a pastor for 30 years and I feel like I've got an understanding about like this. I've got so much more to learn and grow in. My appetite is great to learn the word, the way of God. What does that mean? Well, it's used four times in the New Testament. It's used three times in the Gospel and then here in Acts. And the three Gospel accounts are in Matthew 22, Mark 12, Luke 20. And all of those passages in the Gospels are talking about the uh, situation where the Pharisees were asking Jesus. You know, they're trying to, um, trying to get him in a, in a bind and ask him questions about paying taxes to Caesar. And in Matthew 22, 16, they say this, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearance. You know, I love the insincere compliments. The way of God here, though, is a general description of teaching that corresponds to God's truth. It doesn't necessarily mean salvation or any other particular topic, but it could refer to all kinds of topics, the way of God. So when Aquila and Priscilla are teaching Apollos more accurately in the way of God, it could mean a whole host of topics. The only thing that would help us to know what the topic was would be the context in which it's used, and maybe that would give us some further definition. We have to assume, given what Apollos was doing, given the descriptors that Luke gives, the the author of Acts, gives about Apollos, that he was in fact a believer. I mean, it would seem if he just got converted from his interaction with Aquila and Priscilla, they would have had him baptized as a believer, which they did not. Second thing. We're told that Apollos knew only of the baptism of John. And we have four references about the baptism of John in the Gospels and a reference in Acts 1.22, besides here in Acts 18. Now, baptism was understood by the Jews during this time as only for the dirty Gentiles who were morally bankrupt according to the Jewish mindset. So then John the Baptist comes along, and he demands baptism for everyone. And many of the religious establishment are saying, now, wait a minute, we are the seed of Abraham. We're a lot cleaner than those dirty Gentiles. We don't need that kind of baptism. It was a a baptism of repentance. And part of the ministry of John, John the Baptist, was as a forerunner to Christ, he was to show the need that everybody had for Jesus, that they were to repent of their sin and see Jesus. But the Pharisees made a prideful declaration that they, in fact, were not like the rest of these sinners, that they had no need of all this stuff. So the baptism of John pointed to the need and the promise of Christ while looking to the coming Messiah. Now we know that Apollos already understood that Jesus was the Messiah. He's been defending that in the synagogues. He committed himself to loyalty and allegiance to the scriptures. His his learning of the Old Testament had taught him about all of these prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus. But he was missing something. He was missing something. Was it the Holy Spirit? well, it could be. I mean, the fact is, before I even let the cat out of the bag and tell you what I think about it, is that this is not a hill I'm going to die on, right? uh, There are some passages that seem to be abundantly clear, and others that you kind of have to just say, you know what, this is my best guess. This is one of those best guesses. So, I don't want to sit here and say, ironclad, what I'm presenting is the best and no other option has any credence at all. Was it the Holy Spirit? I'd say that's possible. When Paul goes to Ephesus in Acts 19, he asks the disciples some questions and finds out they had never heard about the Holy Spirit. So he tells them about the Holy Spirit, they receive the Spirit, and they speak in tongues. Now, if Aquila and Priscilla, in that time that they spent with Apollos, and it says they helped him to become more accurate, right? If they told him about the Holy Spirit, it would seem odd that Luke would not say that. I mean, he said it in chapter 19. Why wouldn't he say the same thing in chapter 18 about Apollos? But there's no mention of that. There's no mention of the Spirit or some kind of manifestation. Why wouldn't Luke just say so? So I have a problem with that. I'm prone to think the Holy Spirit was not the issue in chapter 18, but it obviously was in chapter 19. So I think the best that we can do is stay close to the text, stay close to the words. What happened was that Apollos knew only the baptism of John. A baptism that was focused on what was to come versus one that focused on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. A baptism that focused on repentance versus one that focused on our identification with Christ. Verse 27 gives us a little clue as to the difference that this all made for Apollos. When it says he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. I mean, there's some of these same characteristics that were described in verses 24 and 26 about how eloquent he was, how good he was at these debates. But the one big difference is that he greatly helped others through grace. Could it be that something about grace he didn't get earlier that now he gets after Aquila and Priscilla sat him down? See, I think there's there's a Christian life that is marked by obligation alone and then another kind that is marked by grace. I sat with a dear brother recently who had a sexual sin in his past. And he shared about how he went to friends. And he told them, Longtime friends who didn't know this. And tears were just coming down his face as he said, they just told me that they loved me, that they accepted me, that they would, they would be there for me. Now, this had taken place, you know, years before, but he's just kind of sharing his story. And it so ministered to him that, that grace was being applied. He didn't get a lecture. He didn't get five Bible verses against sexual immorality. They received grace.
1: Something about that.
0: There's a Christian life that's marked by following the example of Christ and one that identifies with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, of Him living His life through us in dependent faith. Those are two different kinds of approaches. A Christian life just focused on our responsibilities, I mean, that that has great value. It's not that it's mistaken. It's just incomplete. A Christian life focused on following in the footsteps of Jesus, that is noteworthy, but it's also impossible without the life of Christ in us. That's why Paul writes this in Galatians. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Christ is in us and that's the essence of the Christian life, of our inner life. Get that aligned and the right actions will follow. But in much of evangelicalism, get the actions right. Behave right, then you'll be accepted and the scriptures present a different paradigm. See, there are spiritual realities that are objective facts in our identification with Christ that I think are needful for the Christian life to have freedom and joy. And many don't live the Christian life with freedom and joy. Like Apollos, many have knowledge and zeal They're missing something. Corresponding to the truth of Galatians 2.20 is what Paul writes about believers' baptism. This is out of Romans 6, 3, and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried before him with baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. I had the pleasure of baptizing three of my grandchildren last week. And we, we say that in all these people that we baptize, you know, you're buried with Christ and now raised to newness of life. Is that, those are just words? Is that like abacadabra, you know? Or does this really have meaning? My vote is that believers' baptism, and particularly with our identification with Christ, and the spiritual realities it represents? That was what Aquila and Priscilla shared with Paul. John's baptism looked to Christ, but did not identify with the burial, the death, burial, and resurrection. So if we could dig a little deeper into what this means. By faith, I need to find assurance in these spiritual realities. And one reality is that when Christ died, I died. So what am I dead to? Well, Galatians says we're dead to the law. I am dead to the law. Because of Christ, I have no need to seek God's approval or acceptance outside of his grace. The law was not made to fix us or even help us. It was made to point out that we have a problem. We cannot live by the law. I need grace. Even in the Old Testament. They needed grace. Galatians 2.19 says, For through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. Now, when Paul is using the term law, it obviously refers to this whole set of Old Testament prescriptions. But I think we could extrapolate from that and say that it's any religious performance to gain acceptance. If there was anybody who was susceptible to religious performance to gain acceptance, it was Jews. Instead of looking to the finished work of Christ. Next, I am dead to sin. Our former identity, was, which was marked by our propensity to sin, has died. The Bible says a death took place. Romans says this old man nature, whatever you want to call it, has died, we might say it this way, that which marked our identity, which was the real you, was characterized by a motivation and action to sin. It doesn't mean the Christian is sinless because 1 John says we still sin, but it's not who you are. It's not your identity because you now have a new person in you. Old things are passed away. All things become new. When Christ came into our life, that old you died. You became a completely new person whose identity, whose character now has a propensity for righteousness. That's the new you. Now, Satan would have you believe that you're filled with sin, you don't have what it takes. That you are now still as a Christian identified by what? That sexual immorality, that drunkenness or whatever. You know, whatever is on your list, that's who you are. That's your identity. No, it's not. That's what you did, but that's not who you are. Satan would have you believe that the real you is not capable of victory over sin. That's a lie. It's a fact that the old man, the old you, the person with the propensity and identity for sin has died. So if you're saying, well, I don't believe that. Okay, well, then you tell me what's died. You try to explain it, what has actually died. Next is, I'm not only dead to the law, dead to sin, but I'm dead to self. By our union with Christ, ownership has changed. We have given up our rights in order now to submit to God's will. Paul called himself a bond slave. That's a very vivid description. It's like, you know, at the slave market, People standing on the stage and slave owners trying to buy them, right? Paul is saying, I'm a slave, but I'm a slave to Christ. My will will bend now to my master, who is Jesus Christ. I've been bought off the auction block. I have been redeemed by Christ, and now I am chained to his will. We have changed owners from self, with Satan calling the shots, to Christ. Ownership has changed. Allegiance has changed. And our wills are now obligated to Christ full time. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 says, laying aside the old self, which is now being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. If I had to name who my favorite pastor or speaker would be, it'd be a gentleman by the name of Stephen Olford, who's now passed away. Jed and I had the pleasure of meeting him. Billy Graham said that was his pastor, Stephen Olford. Uh, We were in a week of meetings with him, and it was life-changing. He taught these principles that I'm talking to you about. But he wrote this in one of his books. He says this. Years in the ministry have taught me that many people endure the Christian life rather than enjoy it. Not many pastors have the guts to say that. Are you just enduring the Christian life rather than enjoying it? They know what it is to be forgiven for their sins. They have the hope of heaven. But in between that initial experience of saving faith and that final experience of seeing Jesus, there is a vast gap characterized by barrenness, frustration, and failure. So many Christians today try to live the Christian life apart from Christ, but such human endeavors are doomed to failure. Jesus made that clear when he declared with categorical finality, without me, you can do what? Nothing.
1: Nothing. Hmm.
0: Tragically, Christians still attempt to copy the Christ of history in their own strength. The fact is only one person ever lived a Christian life. It was Jesus. And he did so to the pleasure and glory of his father. Having fleshed out the perfect life and undeviating obedience to the will of God, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. After effecting that eternal salvation through the blood of his cross and the power of his resurrection, he ascended to heaven to impart his life through the Holy Spirit to all who believe his gospel and receive his full salvation. So the Christian life is nothing less than the outliving of the indwelling Christ on the principle of dependent faith. End quote. So I've not only been crucified with Christ, but made alive to something. And again, baptism recognizes this. Well, going back to Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ; it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me; and the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. And again, Christian baptism points to this new life in Christ. Christ is the guarantee of my life, not my performance. Christ Galatians says, it's no longer I who live. My old self is dead. My old way of gaining acceptance with my effort is dead. My old way of sin is dead. The old me is dead. Christ lives in me. God offers life, not an improved old life, a new life. It's a life based on Christ. See, when God looks at you in the family of God, is he basing your acceptance on your performance or who you are or upon Christ? It's obvious, it's upon Christ. It's upon Christ. Did you know that the term in Christ is used over 90 times in the New Testament? We are in Christ, also Christ in us, but just in Christ, used over 90 times. All right, for instance, in Ephesians 1, He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Not because you're a good guy, not because you're in the denomination, but because we are in Christ. God chose us in Christ. He redeemed and forgave us in Christ. Galatians 2.17 says we are justified in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.2 says we are sanctified in Christ. See, many Christians... They'll they'll agree with me about Ephesians, but not sanctification, not living the Christian life. Now I'm on my own. Now I've got to just follow the rules. Eh, wrong. Now I still have to live in dependent faith in Christ just as much as I did for salvation. To live the Christian life, I live in dependent faith on Christ to live his life through me. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says we are made a new creature when we are in Christ. Christ in you, you in Christ. Christ, our life. These are actual blessed facts. These are not figures of speech. It is no longer I who lives. And our text says it's Christ who lives in me. Christ secures my acceptance, not my performance. Everything
1: I do now is done out of the grace and love of Christ that has been poured out in my life. Do you realize how transformative this is? There are so many of us who have lived life seeking the acceptance of others,
0: living with a constant disappointment. You know what the disappointment is? My spouse is not doing their job. You're disappointed with your spouse. You're disappointed in your kids. You're disappointed with your friends. They don't love me and accept me the way I need. I have no friends. And we live with this constant sense of disappointment. And we're looking at this. And we see all these people that disappoint us. Welcome to the human race. Right? Everybody disappoints us. That's no newsflash. That's humanity, right? But that is not the basis of why we live the Christian life. That is not the fuel from which I have in my heart that causes me to be obedient. That is not the fuel that causes me to love. How do I love maybe a spouse or my kids when they disappoint me? If I'm not getting anything back, how do I live and love my friends if maybe they don't give me what I want or they're not meeting needs or whatever it is? See, without Christ being in the equation, we are just gonna be tossed to and fro. This is not just some you know, theological, quasi-philosophical statement. This is a make a difference in how I live statement. And truth is my security and acceptance in Christ or in others. It changes the entire picture of how I live my life. I am not perfect in it, but I guarantee you this. That when I live with grave disappointment in others, and we all do, and it affects how I'm operating, I know it's because I've got my eyes on them. See, I, I choose who I put my faith in. I choose who I'm concentrating on. And it, it's either all that God has done for me, you know, Ephesians 1, Christ living in me, or it's... Everybody else has disappointed me. I'm going to eat some worms. Life sucks. And that's where many of us get to, right? Christ is a guarantee of my new life. Christ is a source of my forgiveness, not my ability to confess. Christ is my acceptance, not my behavior. And by the way, that guarantee of this life in Christ, it's not conditional. You read later on in Galatians, and it's one of the most profound truths that Paul was saying is that when when God makes this promise for us for salvation, guess how many parties are involved? You're probably going to say, well, it'd be two. It'd be God and me. No. One party. Just God. That's why it says he remains faithful. When we're faithless. So see, my acceptance and approval with God is all based on whether I can trust him to keep his word. It's based on the work of Christ. Therefore,
1: God can accept me.
0: Wow. Also, Christ is my new life, not my strength. Not on myself. The victorious Christian life is the life Of Christ living his life through us. It's more than a philosophy or deeper doctrinal emphasis. It's him living his life through me in utter mastery. When I see that it's no longer I who live, I acknowledge the work and presence of Christ. And live in light of this co-crucifixion with him. When I see that Christ lives in me, I see that I'm completely dependent upon Christ to live the Christian life. This is not some, you know, let go and let God. This is not some passive, you know, just sit back and let it happen. It's the rejection of self-effort every day in order for me to submit to Christ every moment. We're told in Colossians 3.3, for you died... And your life is now hidden with Christ and God again. Who died? You died. That old person died. Your new life is now hidden with what? In being a Baptist. Oh, thank God. No. It's hidden in Christ in God. But I still have the world that woos me. I get that. I still have Satan who lies to me right? I still have a flesh that tempts me. I'm not sinless, but my whole identity has changed. I have been reborn into the Spirit who gives me His strength to Christ to live the Christian life. And now I have a choice to live in light of this new self in Christ or to follow the flesh patterns, the world or the deceit of Satan. Objective faith in him becomes responsive faith to him daily, moment by moment. It's the essence of the Christian life. And for me, it seems to be the most likely candidate for what Apollos was missing. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Apollos now spoke boldly. Boldly, meaning that he spoke without being afraid, without caring about what other people thought. I love the approach of Priscilla and Aquila. They they took him aside, probably to their own home, because they lived there. They met him privately instead of publicly calling him out. They didn't give him a a tongue lashing. They didn't separate themselves from him because he, he disappointed them. There wasn't any of that. They spoke to him and explained things to him. And I think equal credit ought to be given to Apollos that he accepted the invitation and he listened. The fact is, some leaders are much too proud to listen and to be corrected. If you ever hear a leader tell you, don't touch God's anointed, run in the other direction. And don't ever submit to a person like that as if they are beyond being confronted or corrected. I'd have nothing to do with a spiritual leader like that.
1: Apollos listened, soaked it in, and acted on it.
0: Mark this down, that true spiritual maturity is not having the right answers. It's humbly receiving the truth and acting on it. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Apollos had made such an impression upon the believers. They, they, they wrote a letter to where he was headed, and they told the church that this man is very knowledgeable, and, and he has a message and a manner that is transformative. You guys need to listen to him. He could he could refute the Jews and show that Jesus was the Messiah. And now that, that grace has dominated his life, he's identified with Christ, that that's meshed in with this. He understood that religious participation, religious knowledge, religious ceremonies could not replace the grace of God. I mean all of this stuff about our position in Christ, our identification with Christ, we deserve none of it. It's just by God's goodwill that he gives it to us. And I'm thinking, why? How? You can only explain it. that That's how great God's love is for us. I mean, Galatians 2.20 says, he loves us and Christ gave himself up for us. I I think that we we so short-circuit grace, we so throw in segments of performance that we just cannot understand how extravagant it is. And listen, you have to understand grace to the point that if you are not being rejected by many with an evangelical Christianity, you probably don't understand grace. (laughs) Because it's my experience that everybody wants to get you back on the track to fit you within the box. Rules. Oh, you drink, oh, or whatever it is, whatever list people have. You don't homeschool? What? Okay, there, there's all these little things that people will throw in, and I'm not dogging any of those things. It's just that it's the way that people live their Christian life out of obligation instead of grace. But man, when, when it's motivated by grace, you just let people take care of that between them and God you know it doesn't bother you that doesn't mean you don't confront people it doesn't mean that you don't deal with truth it just means that grace is your operating principle and you realize that you are in no position to sit there and give people a tongue lashing cuz God has been so good to you and you don't deserve it and when that when that just completely is absorbed it changes the way you operate and live the Christian life. In the book, The Whisper Test, Marianne Byrd writes, I grew up knowing I was different and I hated it. I was born with a cleft palate. And when I started school, my classmates made it clear to me how I looked to others, a little girl with a misshapen lip, crooked nose, lopsided teeth, and garbled speech. When schoolmates ask, what happened to your lip? I'd tell them I'd fall and cut it on a piece of glass. Somehow it seemed more acceptable to have suffered an accident than to have been born different. I was convinced that no one outside my family could love me. There was, however, a teacher in the second grade whom we all adored, Mrs. Leonard. She was short, round, happy, a sparkling lady. Annually, we had a hearing test. Mrs. Leonard gave the test to everyone in the class and finally it was my turn. I knew from past years that as we stood against the door and covered one ear, the teacher sitting at her desk would whisper something and we would have to repeat it. It'd be things like, the sky is blue or do you have new shoes? And I waited for those words that God must have put in her mouth, those seven words that changed my life. Mrs. Leonard said in her
1: whisper. I wish you were my little girl. I wish you were my little girl. Every day, God says to us children, I am so. We need to listen to the words of the Holy Spirit. We need to listen to the pages of scripture where Christ is woven through every book who loved us so much, he left heaven to come and die for us. And Galatians says he did it all because he loves you. May that be the launching pad for how we conduct our relationships
0: you don't accept me you don't love me that doesn't mean I can't love you my heart is full of Christ you criticize me doesn't mean I can't love you because my love for you is not dependent on your criticism of me or even your acceptance of me does it hurt yeah is it hard yeah (laughs) But I have to come back to the spot that all of us have to come back to is that my security and acceptance are in Christ. So when my heart overflows with that, then you're off to the races. Freedom, joy, that becomes a regular part of the Christian life.